Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting Orban Foundation at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, resolution, and togetherness on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. As a thank you, you'll receive a free copy of the book Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War by Michael Orban. Receive your free copy by donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. There was three wonderful surgeons in that practice, and they sat down with me and they told me that if I did that, that they would be totally behind me and help with any problem that I had, you know, working in the ICU there. And that gave me tremendous confidence to do it. And I think after there's an episode like this, you come back to the fact that, you know, like the, like the poem, no man is an island, and that you have to have a team around you to do everything, your family, your work. It's not a solo uh, deal anymore. Welcome to the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members make the transition from the military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including such things as nightmares, rage, and isolation. Veterans and family members in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Thank you for choosing to make this journey with us. Here is today's segment. Hello, thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Mike Orban, and honored to have you with us. Today, we have the honor of speaking with Dr. Michael Daly. Along with more of his professional career, Dr. Daly will share some very unexpected experiences he had as a young doctor working in the intensive care unit and emergency room of a VA hospital. After training in infectious disease, Dr. Daly began practice in 1980 in critical care in Wisconsin. In 2005, Dr. Daly started an office infusion infectious disease practice to avoid hospitalizations and treatment for sepsis. Currently, Dr. Daly is co-president of the Infectious Disease Society of Georgia and works part-time in his seven-doctor infectious disease practice in Metro Atlanta. So let's go down to Alpharetta, Georgia, and welcome our guest. Good morning, Dr. Michael Daly. Good morning, and thank you for having me. Well, thank you for joining us. This is really an honor for us, Dr. Daly. I want to start out, if we can, before we get to your actual experience with medical school and the medical profession, just tell us a little bit about where you're from, how you grew up, what your interests were. Did you play sports, have a dog, and music, that sort of thing? I was a, uh, from an Irish Catholic family. My father was career Navy, and we moved every two to three years, and I was born in a naval air station, as was a couple of my brothers. We had eight children, and my father would be transferred to a new place. He would find a Catholic church with a school, and he would buy a house within a block or two. And most of the time, we had a playground growing up, so 
I mostly enjoyed and look forward to going to the playground every morning, and I still do. <laughs> <laughs> the same one. <laughs> it's not, the, the, play, the playground changed as we got older. <laughs> how, about, how about sports or music or any special hobbies that you really enjoyed that stayed with you? Well, it was a sports-related family. Tennis was the, the family sport. I ended up with more like eight to 10 sports, but 50 years of tennis. And then more recently, I, I took up golf. And uh, But I enjoyed sports almost everywhere I was. It was, uh, it was a wonderful uh, way to, you know, change the scenery, if you will. Sure. Well, lead, lead us up to your decision to enter medical school and become a doctor. When I was coming to the end of high school, I had two thoughts in mind. One was a military career, which I had experienced and understood. The other was medicine. And it took me a long while, long after I became a doctor, to recognize why I chose medicine. But when we were young with seven boys, we were at the emergency room all the time with what I thought was terrible injuries. And, and the ER could always fix those injuries. And I always felt most safe and comfortable in the emergency room. So when I started at the Coast Guard Academy and after a year and a half realized that medicine had to be it, I resigned from the Coast Guard Academy and went to Holy Cross Pre-Med and eventually ended up at, in medical school in, in Detroit. And by that time I was I was I was married. I was married as a as a senior in college, and by the time I finished in medical school, we had three children, three young children. That's uh, was there a special choice for you when you entered medical school? Did you, you you did study microbiology, but was that was there a reason for the microbiology, or was that something you selected after you entered medical school? To be frank, the reason for microbiology was the fact that I played rugby in college, and it took an academic year somewhat out of kilter. <laughs> so I didn't get I I didn't I didn't get into medical school right away. But I decided to, with the help of a friend, to choose something that might get me another shot at getting into medical school. And I applied to microbiology department for a master's degree at Wayne State University in Detroit. Two years later, I completed that and was accepted into medical school there. So now, now you've gone through medical school, you've graduated and received your MD. How did you feel about that? What was the future looking forward for you? Well, the future, the future looked great. I was doing what I wanted to do. I couldn't have been happier. I had a, the family was growing and I had a wife that was, you know, was, was, was wonderful. She, she was an ICU nurse. And I can tell you that when I met her in 1966, that had a powerful influence on me. Even though she knew you were a rugby player who spent a lot of time, <laughs> a lot of time in the emergency room. The, the, the rugby came later, <laughs> unfortunately. Okay, so I, I, doc, I, Dr. Daly, I'm going to turn the microphone over to you and, and guide us through your experiences with your expectations of becoming a doctor and what that would mean for the future and, and some of the actual experiences that you would come across early in your medical career. Okay. After, after completing medical school, I went to Milwaukee and I took a position there in postgraduate training 
And that was to do, ultimately, it was an internship residency and fellowship in infectious disease. The first year went fine, and I had no, no difficulties. And I had, I had had pretty good experience in Detroit. Detroit is a rugged city, medically speaking, and I had no, no trouble dealing with the difficulties of, of medicine there with the drug population and heart valve infections. And as a, as a senior student, they taught you how to put central lines in there because, they had, because there were so many to put in. They, they put you in the emergency room with some of the most difficult circumstances. And I can remember those vividly, you know, that, that month in the emergency room at Detroit Receiving Hospital. But after the internship went fairly unremarkable, except toward the end of that internship year when I, the, we had a, a, a fire at the house. And that I was, I was doing 24 on 24 hour shifts at that time. And we had a fire one morning while I was at the hospital. And uh, when I came home, the, the firemen were there. All the lights were blazing. They were, the place, smoke was coming out. Water was coming out the front door, and there was black smoke had had gone across the ceiling, down the walls to maybe two thirds of the way down the walls of every wall in the in in the house. And fortunately, Maureen and the children got out. It was in the it was in the winter time. They had to trudge through the snow and ice, and but got to a neighbor's house, and they were safe. It it seemed like it should have been good news, but for me, it was the beginning of worry. That worry was, and my wife is tougher than I am, and she she shrugged it off and got on with life, and I had a harder time. But the worry for me was that she was working full-time, I was working full-time, and that the children didn't seem safe because of something that we were doing. And it that that sense and that feeling stayed with me for several months until the, I would say the January of 77, when I was on a ward service, I was a resident in charge of a ward service at the VA hospital. And I ran into a problem that I could not fix with myself. That the issue that I had at that time was that we were we had a pretty sick population of veterans who had advanced cardiopulmonary disease. And the three of the residents were, were arresting almost every day. By, by arresting Dr. Daly, you mean? Their heart stopped. Okay, thank you. And cardiopulmonary resuscitation and the teaching of that in hospitals was actually fairly new at that time. There was no teaching about when to stop cardio cardiopulmonary resuscitation. There was no living wills at that time. And we were expected to resuscitate the patients, take them to the ICU. They would come back a couple of days later and we would go through this again. The conflict I had was really, I didn't think we should resuscitate them. I thought they should be allowed to pass on instead of torturing them. Okay, take your time, Dr. Daly. So, this this went on for a couple of weeks, and I couldn't stop thinking about it, about what to do, and I kept dreading the next, you know, arrest at the hospital. Finally, one day I said, I can't do this anymore. 
So I went to my, the head of my program and I told him, I don't know what's wrong. My mind won't work. I did not know what was the problem, really. And I think he knew. And he sent me to a psychiatrist and he, he told me I had depression. I, I was shocked. I, I couldn't imagine that I had depression, that that was a reason. I, I didn't understand it. And I had to take a month off. I was on medication for a month. In the second month, I started back on an easy service at that time. And the doctor that I was seeing, initially, I was put on a drug called Elevil. Made you feel dulled. <laughs> but it did slowly get you out of the depression in a month. And a month later, the doctor I was seeing said that if I left you on Elevil, if I leave you on Elevil, you are going to have a manic episode. And because everybody does. He said, there's a new drug out. It's called lithium. He said, the belief is that it can prevent those episodes. And so he put me on it. And this was 1977. And I've been on it 43 years now. The beautiful thing is it worked great and allowed me to continue my career. And Dr. Daly, when you say allowed you to continue your career, allowed you to continue your career and be successful and enjoy it? Yes. When I quit, when I quit, <laughs> that's okay. when I stopped seeing patients and went to get help, really, I didn't know what it was, but I thought pretty much my career was over. Which had to be frightening. Yes. You think about all the options, including doing yourself in, but I had, I had four kids at the time and a wife. I finally made up my mind that if I had to be a high school teacher, I'd be a high school teacher or a coach. But I was pretty sure I couldn't do medicine. Let, let me stop you for a minute, Dr. Daly. You, you breeze over that so easily. Do yourself in. Are we talking about a, a passive thought of suicide as not really an, an actual option, but it, it crosses your mind as something that, that would certainly end the pain? Well, the pain is bad enough that you think of every option to stop it. Right. And that's one of the options. Right. I was lucky. I had a wife. I had four children. They, they supported me. The director of my program supported me. The, I, I guess the, the beauty is that a month later, you know, you're much better. Two months later, you really cannot remember what that pain was like. It's gone. It's not inside you. You can't feel it anymore. You know it was a bad time. You, you, mean, you can think that it was a bad time, but you can't remember that pain. So the beauty of getting through it is that you do not have that pain anymore. Besides the medication, the, the lithium that you were taking, did they give you other therapies to, to use, e either speaking with somebody, changing your diet, exercise? Was there a compatible therapy that went along with the medication? I think the only occasionally they would prescribe something if I needed to sleep a little better. But other than that, there was nothing else. I think sleep is a very important indicator of, of our health. Was that something that changed for you when these episodes occurred? Totally. When the episode came and I had that conflict, I couldn't sleep. I would wake up exhausted every day. It was like it was like your brain had a problem that it could not turn off. 
was this in any way affecting your wife and your family? The uh, again, I, I want to be careful how I say this—not the intimacy physically, but just the intimacy of you being there psychologically for your children and and your wife. You know, playing with them, entertaining them. How is school today? These sorts of just everyday normal interactions with your family. Well, in the beginning, before you are forced to get help, you hide it, you ignore it, you try not to think about it. You try to hide it during the day, but it comes every night. Um, after, after you are forced to get help, you, it, at, at the bottom of the despair, really, of the, of the depression, where you're just really motor retarded, <laughs> you can't interact normally with your family. You do the best you can. But, uh, it was hard. Yeah, I, I would think so. As combat veterans, a lot of us run into an experience where when we come home and we have these reactions that are outside of what we expected, it's not just the reaction itself, but it's the fear that something is permanently wrong with our minds, which I think is a, an extraordinary fear. N not just that something is different, but that something's wrong with our physical mind. D did you experience that at all? Yes. When, when you have it, you cannot believe that you can ever get it fixed again. Yes, that's true. And that's the despair or part of the despair. That's the, de that's the despair. So, so on this particular part of your, your, your presentation, Doc, Dr. Daly, if you were to go back to making the decision to see someone or to take the lithium, is, is there a difference on how you would have reacted to that experience in that, that initial month or, or two months? For me, it was, I, I guess it was so bad that I would have done anything anybody said. <laughs> if you was said it, you could fix me, I would have done anything you said. <laughs> right. Do you think there's something in your training? I mean, medical college is very extensive for all that you learn. Is there a way that they could actually prepare you, not necessarily for what you might experience, but that if you do experience something outside of your expectations, this is how you might approach dealing with them? Do you get that training or is that something? You know, most of us think of doctors as infallible. You have the training, so there mu you, you must just be there without any problems. And if you have problems, you're going to resolve them. But these other external problems, unexpected events that might, and experiences that might come into your profession, is there a way to train doctors, again, not to know what you might experience, but if you should experience something outside of your expectations, this might be a good way to deal with them? I, that's a tough one because I think that when you get to the point where I was, you you believe that you have you have conquered Mount Everest. Really, you have done the the hardest thing you thought you would ever have to do, and so the the idea that there wasn't something that you could do is so foreign to your thinking that it's very hard that that anything like that will stick, you know, in in, in somebody's mind. It's just it's just hard to hard to think that. The, and I I had. I, I had a family history that should have told me what it was. I had a grandfather who was alcoholic who helped start the second AA group in Rochester, New York with Bill. I had a brother who's an alcoholic. I had a mother who had depression. I had all those things. And yet I did not, I did not think that it was possible at age 30, 33 that it could happen to me. It just, it just almost beyond belief after what I had gone through, you know, 
in accomplishing all those things and and going through all the difficulties, the, the the failures in school as well as the successes in school. It's you 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 climb that Mount Everest and you 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 get there and it's just it's just hard to believe that something like that could happen to you. So, right. So so the shock and disbelief itself is, is another issue that you have to deal with. And is that something that you're ever concerned in your career that it would come back, or or did, were you comfortable after? after you dealt with this the first time and, and were taking the lithium? I mean, that's got to be a, a, the, the shock and disbelief that you're, you experienced uh, had to, I, I know I'm being redundant, but uh, the shock itself had to be a surprise. Yeah. You, know, you know, a few years later, I was pretty comfortable that I had a solution that would work for me. And in 1980, I was finishing up my infectious disease training program and I was going to get a job and I was looking in the Milwaukee metropolitan area at a, at a, at a large multi-specialty group practice. And I thought that they would hire me for, like hire me for infectious disease, but they didn't. They didn't, they said they didn't need that. What they wanted was somebody in critical care. So that was, that sort of put me right back in the firing line, if you will. But by the time I made that decision, I made a decision that my family was safest in, 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 the, in that community. They'd been there for several years and they were safest. So I sort of solved the safety issue. And so the issue of whether or not I could do it or not came down to whether I felt comfortable with the the doctors that I was working with. And uh, most people don't recognize that in in those years, the critical care doctors in the ICU were surgeons. (laughs) They weren't so much the other doctors. There were hardly any specialists back then. And I, there was three wonderful surgeons in that practice, and they sat down with me and they told me that if I did that, that they would be totally behind me and help with any problem that I had, you know, working in the ICU there. And that gave me tremendous confidence to do it. And I think after this, an episode like this, you come back to the fact that, you know, like the, like the poem, no man is an island, and that you have to have a team around you to do everything, your family, your work. It's not a solo uh, deal anymore. And for me, that was a great thing because I didn't want to go be solo anywhere. And so I, I happened to stumble onto the a work situation in which I could tackle the, the, the hardest things, but I had backup that I felt totally confident in. So that was that was three years later that I was able to to make those two decisions on the safety of my family and my work. So I think you can get over things and you can you can move on and and you can achieve whatever it is you want to achieve, but you just have to recognize that, you know, family support and support of your colleagues is huge. And, and I think that's an excellent point. You, you you can't do it on your own. None of us can, not just in medicine, but in general. To live this life, as you say, no man is an island. I remember Simon and Garfunkel, I am a rock. And that just doesn't make sense in real life. So I'm very, very happy that you brought that up. And you came full circle, actually joining the two of your, your traumatic experiences, the fire at home, the experience in the emergency room, actually came full circle to, to be the ideal place for you. Yes, quite amazing. It is amazing. I'd like to 
take you forward a little bit more, Doc, because not only did you enjoy your career, but you went on to do some really interesting things with AIDS patients when it was first a huge issue in the world. Do you want to share a little bit on that with us, please? Yes. So in a community practice outside of Milwaukee, I saw my first patient with AIDS in 1983. And silly me, I thought, well, that's weird. I'll never see that again. And But I saw it over and over again. That certainly raised some issues for me about my career. And the issue that it raised for me was that I chose something in which I felt that I could work hard and make patients healthy again. Not everybody, but a good percentage. When the AIDS problem hit, every patient that I had was dying. And that was a very, I want to say it was depressing, no other word for it. And it, I can tell you that by 1994, this is, you know, this is 11 years after my first case, and I'd seen dozens, if not hundreds of cases by then, that I wanted to change my career. I, I was thinking about changing it because I, I, did, not, I did not think I could, I could do that forever if, if there was no way to treat those patients. Fortunately, in, uh, about a year after I started thinking that way, in 1995, we had three drug therapy. The patient's immune systems got healthy again, and I was suddenly, the whole situation flipped, and I was able to help people. So that was, that was sort of a, a challenging part of my career in which the challenge was could I exist in a, in a career in which I couldn't help any of my patients? You know, it, it seemed a little bit like cancer therapy at the time. But uh, it, things changed, and we, we got help from all the drug companies, and amazing, amazing story of how those patients got healthy again. And I got healthy when they did. Isn't it remarkable, had you given up your career earlier with the episode in the, the VA hospital, in the, uh, the emergency room, if you had given up medicine, you would not have been there to save a lot of lives in the initial outbreak or, or, or understanding of this horrible disease called AIDS? Yes, it's, that would have been a sad outcome in retrospect. Yes. And there's, I, I guess, a lot of people go through difficulties like that in which they're forced to make difficult choices. And I got, I got lucky that I got help. I got lucky that I was able to deal with things long enough that there was treatment for the uh, HIV infection and that those patients, at the end of my career, I had about 80 patients and they were, they were the most fun to take care of. They, were the, they would come in, they'd tell me their, their, their story of their families and, and their jobs and everything except medicine. And it was, it was tremendous to be able to do that, recognizing what, what we had before that. In an earlier conversation, Dr. Daly, you had mentioned something that your mother said to you and something that Mother Therese had, had mentioned that was very helpful. Would you like to share that with the audience? Yeah, my mother, my mother was amazing. I raised eight kids, eight children. When we lived in San Diego, California, for several years, she went to meet Mother Teresa and to help raise money for her. She told me later that she took me to meet Mother Teresa, although I didn't have much memory of that. 
But later on, I I started to read a little bit about Mother Teresa and everything that she did. And at the infusion practice, infusion meaning we give drugs, IV, antibiotics, and other medications. I put on the wall of that infusion practice a narrative that she wrote called Do It Anyway. And it, it, it goes through all the difficulties that everybody has in life in which people try to persuade you or irritate you or whatever bully you into doing things that you shouldn't do. And her answer was, for all of those, was do it anyway. And that, to me, was a great thought for all the difficulty that everybody, you know, has to go through in life, that they don't let anybody get them off track for the wrong reason. Dr. Daly, it has been a pleasure. Thank you for the courage to come on and tell us your story. Are there something else you'd like to share with us yet today? I guess, now this this isn't so much about medicine, perhaps, but my thought about depression and how that works, because everybody takes it as a personal failure as opposed to a medical failure. To me, the battery is, the, 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 the brain is like a giant battery, and that battery can be drawn down by any number of things, such as, you know, the worry and, and irresolvable conflicts that you sometimes have to deal with. If you look at a PET scan of somebody's brain, the PET scan of a normal brain is very bright. The PET scan of a brain that's depressed is, looks like it's turned off, looks like the light is off. But that battery, I think, was stabilized for me with, with lithium. And it seemed like a simple solution to deal with. And in the long run, it didn't have to do with you know, any stigma or anything, all the stigma was gone by by the time I got to the, you know, a couple months late, uh, later. And the only issue was, was there something that would fix that battery and stabilize it or not stabilize it? And I got lucky that just at the time that, that I was faced with that problem, that there was this drug that, that was helpful, profoundly helpful. And so I think people need to get over perhaps the brain, the brain issues as, you know, just uh, stigma and personal failure. And it's really, a, it's really a mechanical failure that they don't understand, but they can get help for it. That is powerful, powerful advice. Uh, Dr. Daly, thank you so much for being with us. This has been a wonderful discussion. And I want to let our audience know that you can read more about Dr. Daly and see some of the articles that he has published over the years. And one of the other things I would like to congratulate Dr. Daly on is his continued interest in the medical profession, writing articles, but also has an interest in high school suicide and has at times tried to get into working on that issue as well. So he's not just a man who did his career and retired. He stays involved in the, the health of the, the human spirit. And for that, we appreciate you, Dr. Daly. Well, thank you. And thanks for listening to this story. It's a great one. We, we will talk to you again. Hope to invite you back. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Daly. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is always welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Our program is produced by Blueberry Pro Productions. On behalf of Michael Orban, this is Bob Bach. Thanks for joining us, and please tune in again.